Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Karen Smith, and I'm head of the International Relations Department. Uh, the International Relations Department is the sponsor of tonight's lecture, uh, which is in honor of Susan Strange. Susan Strange was arguably Britain's most influential scholar of world politics in the last quarter of the 20th century. She was the first female holder of the Montague Burton Professorship in IR at the LSE, a position that she held between 1978 to 1988. She was a leading and forceful voice in debates on financial capital, American power, and state sovereignty, and authored prescient books on states and markets, casino capitalism, and mad money. She created the first graduate program in international political economy in the UK here at the LSE in 1984, which put the field of IPE on the map in the UK. And in fact, the MSc in international political economy remains an extremely popular uh, MSc uh, program at the LSE. In 1995 to 1996, she served as president of the International Studies Association, the premier scholarly association in international relations. In 2016, the LSE enabled departments to set up new named professorships, and the IR department successfully lobbied for a new professorship in the name of Susan Strange um, to honor uh, one of its most influential scholars. In doing so, it created the first chair at the LSE that is named after a woman which is a bit shocking that it took until 2016 for that to happen, but nonetheless, here we are. So tonight's lecture is by the current Susan Strange visiting professor, Professor Etel Solingen. Etel is a distinguished professor and holder of the Thomas T. and Elizabeth C. Tierney Chair in Peace Studies at the University of California, Irvine. In 2012-2013, she was president of the International Studies Association. Her work, which has won numerous awards, focuses on the reciprocal influence between international security and international political economy, a clear link here with the work of Susan Strange. And her lecture tonight is on international political economy, sources of nuclear prol proliferation. Uh, before I hand over to Ethel, a few housekeeping items. Um, this event is being recorded, and we hope that a podcast of it will be made available online later. Please turn your mobile phone to silent to avoid disrupting the event. If you wish to tweet about the event, do we have it? Yeah, you can use the hashtag LSCIR. Um, and a Q&A session of about a half an hour or perhaps a little bit more will follow uh, the lecture. So housekeeping matters now done. Please join me in welcoming Ethel Solingen for the um, Susan Strange Professor of 2020. Uh, good evening. Um, it's a special pleasure to be here today. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, the current head and the former head uh, of the Department of International Relations, Karen Smith and Peter Trubowitz, and so many others at LSE that um, for their kind reception. And it is a unique honor for me to deliver the Susan Strange Lecture. Uh, as uh, Karen mentioned, she was the third female president of the International Studies Association where I met her years before I, I myself was elected president. Uh, and so there is that connection as well. Tonight's question is, why have some states acquired nuclear weapons while most renounced them? 
I address here this, the so-called second nuclear age, uh, the global political and economic context under which decisions were made since 1968 when the Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, was signed. The first nuclear age ended when the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, with the Non-Proliferation Treaty's in inception. This is a topic that Susan Strange herself wrote very little about. Uh, but I think some of her first principles for the study of international relations, and, es and especially the study of international political economy, IPE, are pertinent to this arena as well. Susan, uh, as most of you know, asked the central question in IPE, cui bono, who benefits? And I've argued for a long time that IPE-related distributional considerations do shed light on why some states acquired nuclear weapons and others renounced them. But before I explain that logic, I must introduce another um, IR theory uh, that goes by the name of neorealism or structural realism that has indeed dominated the analysis of nuclear choices. So the old conventional wisdom, where am I on this? Yeah, so actually the menu is here. Um, I'll go over this theory. I will present a um, uh, my own argument, and then some convergences with Susan Strange, and then I lead into a somewhat painful topic of where we are in sort of world time affecting this issue area of nuclear weapons. So the old conventional wisdom is associated in this field with the late Professor Kenneth Walt, who used to be my colleague in the UC, in the University of California system, he was at UC Berkeley. Waltz and others argued that anarchy renders all states insecure, uh, compelling self-help, and that nuclear weapons provide security, stability, and minimize the chances of war. States, he believed, acquired nuclear weapons to guarantee their security as dictated by the structural logic of a system level balance of power. This is it, short and presumably sweet. A theory alluring for its simplicity. But despite its uh, prima facie or intuitive appeal, caveat emptor, buyers beware or as Susan Strange once warned against another theory, hic sunt dragones, there's a famous article that she's known for. Beware, here lie the dragons. And why should we be warned? Because uh, I believe neorealism overestimates structural power as if it was the driving force of all or most nuclear decisions, but I do believe that claim is misleading. First of all, a non-trivial number of empirical anomalies uh, challenges the validity of this theory, because think about it, given the logic, the very logic of anarchy, uncertainty, and self-help that, that I just laid out, 
Why have all or most states not acquired nuclear weapons? Even moderate predictions haven't materialized. In 1963, President Kennedy famously foresaw 15 or 225 nuclear new nuclear weapon states by the 1970s. But over 55 years later, there are, I don't want to say only nine, but there are only nine, not, not 25. And an overwhelming majority has majority of states has renounced nuclear weapons and joined the Non-Proliferation Treaty, one of the, actually the second most highly subscribed international treaty in existence. It's the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, it has 190 signatories. The WTO has only 164. So 2020 actually marks the 50th anniversary of the uh, in set the entering into force of the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1970. It was signed in 1968, entered into force in 1970. But beyond these aggregate numbers, other facts challenge neorealism on empirical grounds. Several acutely vulnerable states have not gone nuclear. Too many power balances fail to form. Even states whose rivals acquired nuclear weapons did not always respond in kind, including Japan, Egypt, Vietnam, Germany, Jordan, many, many others. Insecurity was clearly not a sufficient condition for acquiring nuclear weapons because many insecure states have not done so. And indeed, insecurity was not always necessary. States without existential uh, threats actually sought nuclear weapons. One example is, for instance, Libya in the 1970s. Not at that time. Uh, and, and, and Iraq in the 1970s, before the war with Iran. So now you're thinking, I'm sure, what about alliances? Extended deterrence provides, at, be at best, I believe, only a partial answer to uh, the question of nuclear abstention. Waltz himself asked, in a world of anarchy and self-help, why would anybody trust an ally? The essential logic of survival trumps, Trump is a good word for this topic here, <coughs> trumps the notion that states can substitute external protection for self-help. Now, the nuclear umbrella may have persuaded some, but not others. Remember, France and Britain uh, um, sought their own deterrence, too. That was under the first nuclear age. But furthermore, many states renounced nuclear weapons, even without superpower guarantees. They didn't need a nuclear umbrella, Egypt, South Africa, many others. There are many anomalies here. So a non-trivial number of anomalies suggests that acute vulnerabilities may be neither necessary nor sufficient for acquiring nuclear weapons, and that extended deterrence is unnecessary for states to renounce nuclear weapons. Waltz and others also predicted that multipolar systems would breed proliferation, and yet uh, most uh, multipolar regions have not done so. Now, beyond the empirical anomalies, um, Neorealism suffers from uh, fundamental conceptual deficiencies. It assumes that states are unified monolithic entities 
black boxes colliding against each other, and that all states behave similarly uh, uh, under, under the same structural conditions. Yet we know, we know that similar structural conditions can lead to very different choices for or against nuclear weapons. Acquiring them, acquiring nuclear weapons, can also lead to higher insecurity and vulnerability. So there isn't a singular imminent structural logic at play. The theory's corollaries are therefore inconclusive, open-ended. This is not the parsimonious theory that neorealism claims to be. Self-help, as I said, can lead to wide-ranging nuclear and non-nuclear options. Furthermore, think about it, many states have shifted towards and away from nuclearization over time, even as their structural position or their relative power remained unchanged. So with its tenets so indeterminate and unclear, this theory is hardly a reliable guide for what states might do. It is afflicted with what in methodology we call the problem of multifinality, where many outcomes are consistent with similar degrees of insecurity. And this pushes the theory a little bit into unfalsifiability and possibly into tautological territory. Uh, because most nuclear choices can be made to fit some sense of, uh, of maximizing security, but a posteriori, they're basically rationalizations. And yet, according to its own epistemology, a strong theory must be able to predict accurately a priori, at least for Waltz. Uh, Waltz actually argued, and I quote, a theory's usefulness is judged not only by not only, um, by not only its explanatory, but also its predictive powers, end of quote. Now, because neorealism leans on elastic and subjective definitions of balance of power, self-help, insecurity, and power itself, and power itself, you'll see how different Susan Strange is in, in that regard, because of that, it cannot identify even rough thresholds of vulnerability that would compel a country to acquire nuclear weapons. And one dramatic example is the perennial neorealist prediction, perennial because it's decades old, the perennial prediction that Japan would go nuclear. Yet Japan has not done so in nearly seven decades facing a nuclear Soviet Union slash Russia, a nuclear China, a looming, a looming uh, regional hegemon, and now South, uh, North Korea. North Korea for a long time. North Korea has been pursuing nuclear weapons uh, literally since the 1950s and 60s. So it's not a new set of threats for Japan, uh, the current uh, North Korean activities. So again, some, some of you including would trace this outcome to the US-Japan alliance. That's sort of the common reaction. But for Waltz, again, alliances are insufficient. And there, there is some logic to what he's saying. Uh, states needs, need their own deterrent if his logic applies, right? Self-help, insecurity. Over 40 years ago, uh, Waltz said, and I quote, great powers must expect to take care of themselves. How long can Japan live alongside other nuclear states 
while denying itself similar capabilities, end of quote. Well, a long time, it seems, is the answer. Uh, Japan's nuclear abstention is particularly challenging for this theory. Uh, as a Japanese vice admiral once put it, and I quote, the nuclear umbrella held by the U.S. must surely be useful, but for complete faith, there is the nuclear umbrella opened by oneself, end of quote. Even strong alliance supporters in Japan and elsewhere among uh, U.S. allies had concerns with U.S. commitments, valid concerns with U.S. commitments. A former head of Japan's Defense Research Institute, uh, his name was Makoto Momoi, refers, referred to the alliance as, and I quote, a Bible. You may know every word uh, in it and believe it to be true, but you, can you really be sure of salvation? He asked, uh, end of quote, and after Nixon went to China without even consulting or notifying, not consulting, notifying Japan that he was going uh, to China to establish diplomatic relations. After he did that, uh, Momoi said, um, um, and I quote, you can say that we've put the Bible away. It's something around the home, but the children don't read it any longer. End of quote. If concerns with the reliability of the U.S. alliance existed for all those decades, you can only imagine what the Trump revolution has done to the value of that and any alliance. Actually, the U.S. Japan alliance and U.S.-South uh, Korean alliance, just as NATO, are really uh, the best practices in this domain. These are not marginal alliances. Trump has actually suggested that South Korea and Japan should develop their own nuclear weapons. And of course, there are many tensions between the Trump, the White House, and uh, South Korea on a number of issues, um, just as between um, the White House and, and NATO and so on. Over three years into a Trump world, and neither country has followed his recommendation yet. But given the extremely high thresholds already crossed, including North Korean nuclear and ballistic tests, including intercontinental ballistic uh, tests, these decades-old imminent predictions should have come to pass. But the Trump era also puts to rest another neorealist crutch or prop that Japan didn't go nuclear because of U.S. coercion. The reality is that Nixon himself encouraged Japan to go nuclear. He did, he did that in none other than foreign affairs in 1967, uh, very publicly. Uh, so the sources of Japan's nuclear restraint lie elsewhere, not in U.S. coercion. Let me sum up and say that neorealism neo then conjures up multiple co possible outcomes, does not pro provide clear markers for likely behavior. The consequential changes in balance of power that should have triggered discontinuities in nuclear choices remains unclear. It ignores uh, that nuclear weapons can also undermine security. It fails to explain many cases uh, easily or at high levels of confidence and parsimony and basically competes with other theories. 
Now, why are these anomalies and conceptual flaws a big deal for a neorealist theory? Because nuclear proliferation provides easy grounds for a theory pivoted on uh, insecurity under anarchy. Nuclear weapons are the inner sanctum at the heart of state security dilemmas, providing the most favorable domain for corroborating uh, neorealist tenets. Nuclear choices, in other words, load the analytical dice in its favor, offering the most likely case, the easiest arena for validating that theory. And yet many, many cases, including crucial ones, as the example I just provided, but also many others, fail to confirm. Now, uh, other theories explain choices better in a non-trivial number of cases, not universally, but in a non-trivial number of cases, and overshadow neorealism in its home court, so to speak, nuclear weapons. And why? Because the internal architecture of states does matter. Internal disagreements over what constitutes an external threat, an external threat are the norm. Threats are not simply derivatives of some abstract balance of power. Particular leaders and regimes interpret and spin uh, those threats differently. So one should not overestimate structural state insecurity and conflated with regime insecurity. So let me now introduce a different approach. Uh, I call it uh, models of political survival. And the basic insight is that domestic orientations to the global economy, here comes the, the IPE sort of take on this, that domestic orientations to the global political economy have implications for nuclear choices. Leaders and their supporting coalitions rely on different models of political survival to gain and retain power in a globalizing world. The distributional consequences of globalization lead uh, to two ideal, Weberian ideal typical models, an internationalizing model and an inward-looking model. Each model entails a different grand strategy uh, with domestic, regional, and global reference, and each of the models um, entails different incentives regarding nuclear weapons. In a nutshell, what I want to argue is that nuclear aspirants are more likely to emerge, more likely to emerge in domestic and regional contexts that are dominated by inward-looking models, and that by contrast, internationalizing models and regions make the quest for nuclear weapons less likely. And notice, notice this, this is not a deterministic theory by any stretch. It's sort of a probabilistic statement. But what's the underlying logic? Internationalizing models seek to gain and maintain power through economic growth via engagement with the global economy. They have incentives to avoid political, economic, reputational, and opportunity costs of nuclearization, which harm those internationalizing grand strategies. Those strategies require the following things. They require resources for compensating constituencies adversely affected by economic openness, restraining military expenditures, 
that often compete with those resources needed for internationalizing the economy and the polity, and they require progressively reducing barriers to trade and foreign investment. That's kind of the East Asian model. Internationalizing strategies also require cooperative regions because cooperation can free up resources for domestic reform, uh, for strengthening domestic constituencies and institutions that favor economic openness, uh, resources to uh, um, cooperation helps weaken opponents of reform, including military industrial complexes, reduces uncertainty, encourages foreign investment uh, uh, without regional cooperation and stability, foreign investment uh, doesn't come in. I have a nice quote from Susan um, on, a, on a related uh, angle of that. So internationalizing models, in, in essence, must abide by rules of inter, of the rules of international institu institutions that promote all those choices, all those preferences. So here you see the clear synergies across the domestic, regional, and global pillars of an internationalizing strategy. And acquiring nuclear weapons endangers those objectives. It raises barriers to access international markets, technology, and political support. It strengthens nuclearization, that, that is, strengthens state bureaucracies and industrial complexes opposed to economic openness. Think Iran and the um, Revolutionary Guards. Um, nuclearization rattles neighbors and endangers their own economic reforms. Uh, it burdens efforts to uh, enhance economic competitiveness, macroeconomic and political stability, and it undermines international reputations for uncertain gains. So take East Asia, for example. Under Mao's fanatical inward-looking model, China tested its first nuclear weapon in 1964, but since the 1960s, most other East Asian states advanced internationalizing models and renounced nuclear weapons. Only North Korea, an exception to East Asia's typical trajectory, acquired nuclear weapons. North Korea is the prototypical inward-looking model, uh, where leaders stake their survival on resisting integration to the global economy, the global political economy, I should say, uh, hostile to international markets, investment, technology, and institutions, those models favor economic protectionism, self-sufficiency, expansive statist and military-industrial entrepreneurship, and of course, hyper-nationalism, all of which shields and benefits, again, the cui bono question, their supporting coalitions. Most of the cases of nuclearization that you may be familiar with uh, fit this model. Inward-looking models are not particularly keen on cooperative re regions because cooperation undermines allocations to their constituencies, military, bureaucratic, statist, and protectionist compl complexes, and because it deprives inward-looking models from opportunities to promote hyper-nationalist myths. Inward-looking models also clash with international institutions that are inimical to their survival strategy uh, across the range of economic, security, human rights, uh, and other regimes. So inward-looking models 
incur fewer costs from exploiting nuclear weapons as tools of political survival. And there are, again, strong synergies in this model as well across the domestic, regional, and international pillars of the, their grand strategy. And again, in this case, several Middle East states fit this profile historically very well. Now, there is significant empirical support for systematic differences in nuclear choices between these two models. In a book entitled Nuclear Logics, I collected detailed evidence on many cases, uh, uh, yielding the following conclusions. I thought I had... Um, Stop moving, so let me see. Yep. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you. So here is, a, here is the, um, the patterns. First, since 1968, again, we're talking about the second nuclear age because we need to keep the world time constant, right, when the nonproliferation treaty uh, came on board. Uh, since uh, 1968, every decision to abandon nuclear weapons by states that had entertained them was nested in these broader shifts towards internationalization. Only internationalizing models undertook effective commitments to renounce nuclear weapons in cases from Sadat's Egypt to post-apartheid South Africa, post-Franco -fran post Spain, Brazil, Argentina, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, several European countries, and Libya in 2003, Burma more recently. Second, of all nuclear aspirants, not one shifted to effective, transparent denuclearization under dominant inward-looking models. Third, most defiant nuclear courses unfolded and were under inward-looking models from Argentina's Peron, Brazil's Getulio Vargas, Nasser in earlier periods to Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, the Kim Dynasty, Ahmadinejad, and others, Sukarno um, and the Burmese junta once uh, fit that pattern well, and of course, Syria, until the Assad's wishful nuclear wings were clipped when its nuclear facility built by North Korea was destroyed. Fourth, where internationalizing models became stronger politically, the departure from nuclear claims was more decisive uh, and resilient, even where the security context remained brittle, as is the case to this day in the Korean Peninsula and the Taiwan Straits. Fifth, internationalizers that were weakened domestically were more constrained in curbing nuclear programs. This is evident, for instance, from uh, the presidency of Khatami in Iran, who might have wanted to go in that direction, uh, but was um, weak domestically to do that, and possibly uh, is the case with Rouhani in Iran today, who is also weakened. Six, 
This pattern finds support across different regional security contexts and across diverse associations with hegemonic powers with or without a nuclear umbrella. Now, in sum, I believe these models explain several things. They explain why we observe competing nuclear preferences by different actors within the same state, why nuclear policies may vary over time in the same state as a function of shifting models, why different states vary in compliance with the Non-Proliferation Treaty, why some uh, have incentives to depict security dilemmas as more or less uh, intractable, why some rank alliance uh, higher than self-reliance or vice versa, why and when external coercion and inducements may be effective, why nuclear designs, designs surfaced where security, security hardly justified them, and why they were renounced where one might have expected them. But while these models certainly point to empirical regularities, there are, they are not the only game in town. The book's title was Nuclear Logics in the Plural. Uh, uh, so uh, they are not the only game in town, but those models, which are analytically indispensable in my view, were entirely omitted from the uh, canonical repertoire when I started to work on this issue many moons ago. So methodologically speaking, the omission of an important variable endows other variables with too large an effect on the outcome that one wants to explain, leading to what we know as potentially spurious inference. Said differently, the omission of these models, I believe, led to an overestimation of other causal variables, including balance of power, a very elusive concept, whereas their incorporation in the repertoire helps reorder, condition, and modify the relative weight of other variables, perhaps improving our estimation of their proper impact on uh, nuclear choices. Now, the association between models and nuclear choices, I believe, is significant, but only prob probabilistic, as I said, and that is as good as it gets in the social sciences. It's only a tendency. Internationalizing models and regions make the development of nuclear weapons less likely than inward-looking uh, ones. And this claim is refutable and falsifiable, an internationalizing model may embrace nuclear weapons under certain conditions, and an inward-looking uh, model may abandon them. The, cl the claim is also bounded by, by a number of scope conditions. Uh, one of them, for instance, is the regional incidence of respective models in, in a region. So barriers to nuclearization are more robust in regions where, with an internationalizing center of gravity, as, as is the case with uh, Asia, East Asia. Another scope condition uh, is, uh, is revealed by applying something called prospect theory, and, and this goes uh, slightly this way. Leaders, 
and this comes from political psychology, leaders and publics value more what they already have, it's called the endowment effect, than what they might get in an uncertain future. They are more averse to losing what they already possess for uncertain, uh, that, uh, for uncertain future gains. So in, in translating it, eliminating existing nuclear weapons is costlier politically than reversing programs before they come to fruition. Temporality and sequence, uh, sequencing also matter. So for instance, nuclear reversals are much harder when nuclearization precedes the inception of an internationalizing model. China and India, for instance. Israel may fit the, uh, that case as well. Basically, what I'm saying is that the incentives emanating from the global political economy operate more forcefully at earlier stages in the quest for nuclear weapons. It's easier, for instance, perhaps, to Iran, for Iran to <clears throat> negotiate a nuclear program in the making than it is for North Korea to negotiate away nuclear weapons in place. You have to sell that to your domestic public. Let me now turn to convergences, some convergences with Susan Strange, Susan Strange's approach to IR, IPE. So reflecting on her analytical commitments and what they might say about the question at hand. But I do want to warn you that she wrote very little about this topic, so I try to scan as much as I could and infer some of this, uh, and I hope to provide some <clears throat> um, a sense of where, where, where she stood on these issues. On the one hand, Susan was a structuralist, but her approach to balance of power was less mystical uh, or mechanical a construct uh, than Waltz's neorealism. For her, power was more relational and contextual. Like Waltz, though, she saw nuclear weapons as inducing caution in states that owned them. Uh, some of her writings suggest that deterrence had worked. I was actually surprised by that, but she did. Uh, and that states have avoided the risk of mutual annihilation. Uh, so there was some, uh, some alignment there with uh, or support for deterrence theory. But unlike Waltz, Susan recognized explicitly that incentives emanating from peaceful competition in the global political economy were no less important. That's very different um, and very much in line with <clears throat> Susan's approach to uh, the need to bring IPE into, uh, into IR. There are other convergences between uh, the approach that I proposed and some of Susan's first principles. First is the search for theories that illuminate real world problems. Susan shunned idle theorizing. Second is her pragmatism, the effort to understand reality rather than some dogmatic defense of isms in IR. Third is the serious limitations of state-centric analysis. The imperative to focus on actual agents 
rather than reified uh, actors like monolithic states. She emphasized the power and agency, of, of course, of transnational corporations that sometimes can overwhelm the power of states, a very non-Waltzian take. Fourth is Susan's interest in good old real-world politics, which some contemporary analytical trends sometimes substitute with obfuscating abstractions. Fifth, Susan defied orthodoxy. And the IPE approach is not precisely orthodoxy in the analysis of nuclear choices. However, some of her themes did become more conventional in time. And the IPE angle on nuclear choices has also made inroads against the old orthodoxy, I'm happy to say. Six, Susan paid close attention to the raw power underlying international bargains and, as you know, was skeptical of international regimes. So from that vantage point, the NPT is epiphenomenal of those bargains, not the product of converging global norms, but rather the product of another bargain, one between nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states civilian technology in exchange for nuclear weapons abstention. That's the essence, or one of the essences of, of the non-proliferation treaty. Indeed, in states and markets, she also predicted that the NPT would no longer be relevant by the 1990s. Actually, that's when the NPT took off. She got that slightly wrong. But uh, she actually predicted she was so skeptical of international regimes, um, uh, as you all know, that she predicted the NPT would no longer be relevant and that horizontal proliferation, meaning more states becoming nuclear, uh, new nuclear weapon states, will be more of an issue than vertical proliferation in the 1990s. As it turns out, we'll see what happened in the 1990s, uh, which didn't exactly go that way. But seven, seven, uh, unlike Waltz, Susan thought that states, especially affluent states, were fully aware that their affluence depends on benefits that they extract from the global economy rather than on territory and resources gained through war. War, she said, and I quote, could destroy that source of affluence. affluence. So states now, sh now show, she said in the 1980s, every sign of regarding a major war between themselves as unthinkable. And not only because of the destructiveness of nuclear weapons, end of quote. So you can see here that Susan belonged to what is now actually a um, a thriving uh, cottage industry of theories that explain the absence of interstate war or the, the obsolescing, um, uh, the, the obsolescence of interstate war and increasing within state wars. Again, this, the, the, this belief that the, the, um, the global economy provides such incentives is, is antithetical completely to, uh, to Waltz, who wrote uh, important books, including his 1979 book, uh, uh, challenging that very notion. In states and markets, 
written in, 19, in the 1980s, Susan was explicit that nuclear weapons were not useful for attracting foreign investment, the more important coin of the realm in her view. In sum, the approach I proposed takes distributional effects of globalization seriously as Susan would have it. Uh, attention to this cui bono uh, angle helps unveil interesting first, second, and third order effects on domestic and international politics, including domestic bargains that underline nuclear choices. So states don't go inexorably nuclear as autopilot responses to changes in some sort of ill-defined intergalactic, intergalactic balance of power. There is growing attention to strong causal and temporal associations between approaches to the global economy and decisions to abandon nuclear weapons or nuclear ambitions, but not enough. The default remains elusive balance of powers, balances of power. Now, there may be some elegance in what is known as Occam's razor, the concept that a simple theory is best. But uh, Philip Tetlock, um, a, giant, a giant methodologist in, in, in the field of international relations, Philip Tetlock convincingly argued that the more complex explanation, one that is attentive to contingency and context, is often the correct one, uh, even if it makes predictions more difficult. And I find this um, quite in line with Susan's reading of theory and international politics. Now, speaking of politics, I'll conclude with some observations re regarding the world time we live in. So first, tonight I discussed patterns under this so-called second nuclear age, beginning with the inception of the NPT in 1968, ratification entering into force in, in 1970. This is really a very important year for the NPT, um, and we're entering this year in a state of um, disarray uh, in this particular issue area. Uh, so the patterns that I discuss are applicable to that second nuclear age. But it is possible, it is possible that this age may be coming to an end. Now, concerns with proliferation, nuclear proliferation cascades, dominoes, tipping points, all those words, have been with us for the entire nuclear age. As I told you, even President Kennedy was predicting um, um, many more. So that, those concerns uh, have been with us um, uh, for a long time, although they have not materialized. But they are now more alive today than ever before, signaling perhaps the onset of a third nuclear age. I'm not saying it, it will happen, but perhaps that's, those are the signals we're getting. Let me tell you why. Uh, there is something called, I was talking to Susan about this, something called a doomsday, I'm sorry, a doomsday clock uh, that is posted by something called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Uh, and, th and that doomsday clock 
just moved within the last few weeks within a hundred seconds of midnight. Some of the physicists in the public, if there's some, they would be familiar with that clock. That clock then uh, has moved within a hundred seconds of midnight. Midnight being nuclear, um, the worst outcome. And it did so by citing the concurrent existential dangers of nuclear war, climate change, compounded by cyber-enabled information warfare. There's a, there are many conversations today about cross-domain deterrence, you know, a, a lot of complexity in this, in this area that may have infused those in charge of checking the doomsday clock uh, and, uh, and uh, manipulating where it is. Uh, at, every year they do that uh, in terms of vis-a-vis uh, -vis the doomsday scenario. And this is the closest to doomsday we have been ever since the bulletin of atomic scientists, the proverbial clock in the bulletin, was conceived in 1947, the beginning of the Cold War. There are still over 13,000 nuclear weapons worldwide, some on high alert, though these are far fewer, far fewer than there were in the, during the Cold War. So why these heightened concerns? Why? They emanate first, I believe, from a sense that the so-called liberal multilateral global order is rapidly decaying, especially in the IPE domain. The impressive expansion of global markets and underlying institutions in the 1990s had undermined inward-looking models and facilitated landslide NPT ratifications, exactly in the 1990s when Susan was um, fearing um, the opposite trajectory. So in the 1990s, sort of the, the, the wave of globalization, you also see the landslide in NPT ratifications leading to practically nearly full NPT membership. There are only three countries, four, uh, that are not NPT members. Because they're not NPT members, they're not violating technically the spirit of the non-proliferation, the, the, the letter of the NPT because they haven't signed the international agreement and they are India, Pakistan, <coughs> Uh, and Israel, uh, and, and North Korea is in a different category. It has violated, it was a member, a MPT member and withdrew, not according to the rules of MPT membership. So um, over the promising era of, um, you know, where the liberal multilateral order um, was thriving, uh, more countries renounced nuclear weapons and programs than tried to acquire them by, by any stretch, and that's a fact. Yet the putative demise of the liberal economic order as we have known it could bolster populist leaders bent on restoring this inward-looking or autarkic uh, grand strategies. As you all know, trade wars, weakened alliances, and growing security threats are already with us. Now that resurgence of inward-looking models has several sources. 
Susan Strange herself, and Karen mentioned uh, her work in this regard, warned that unbridled capitalism and the so-called Westphalia system, as she coined this term, would undermine genuine capitalism and that socioeconomic polarization was not in anyone's long-term interest. It was casino capitalism that deepened inequality and unleashed Polanyesque uh, counter-movements, including nationalism and other uh, newly discovered social tropic um, tendencies. But the solution, as she saw it, was not protectionism. Actually, Susan, I found, compared protectionism to, and I quote, smoking cigarettes, habit-forming, and damaging to your health, end of quote. It's in millennium 1991. She was rightfully concerned with adverse effects of financial crisis and thought the future of world peace hinged on a healthy global economy. Crisis unleash unexpected consequences, foster contestation over globalization and distributional outcomes, and buttress inward-looking agendas. Such agendas, as we know, can also fuel nuclear proliferation. So that in the realm of the sort of IPE global scene today. Second, overlaid on this state of affairs in IPE are the unraveling of armed control agreements, the deterioration of consensus on the NPT, the 2017 uh, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the glorification of nuclear, well, that treaty created a chasm, a, a, a deeper chasm between nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states, including non-nuclear weapon states covered under the nuclear umbrella, namely most of NATO countries that didn't even attend that conference. Uh, Additional, additional um, events in this particular realm are the glorification of nuclear weapons by populists such as Putin, Trump, and Kim Jong-un, and others, uh, and their explicit and sometimes implicit nuclear threats. As you know, there was the, my button is bigger, bigger than yours, uh, there's Putin's threats on, um, to Eastern and, and, uh, and Northern European countries, etc., etc. There's plenty of that. Now, Russia, the U.S., and China are accelerating the global nuclear arms race, and India and Pakistan, the regional one. The 2018 Nuclear Posture Review upgraded the role of nuclear weapons in the U.S., Trump withdrew from the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces in Europe Treaty and has signaled that he won't renew the Obama-era New START Strategic Nuclear Weapons Treaty when it expires next year. That will be the end of any of the treaties uh, that have some bearing on um, keeping the vertical uh, arms race uh, from uh, um, from basically um, that keeping the modernization at tolerable levels. All of these events violate commitments, um, by the way, 
made in Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, by nuclear weapon states. Those commitments say we'll reduce the threat of vertical proliferation, right, the modernization of nuclear arsenals by the nuclear haves, in exchange for others, the, the, nuclears, the nuclear have-not, others renouncing nuclear weapons altogether. That bargain is being uh, violated. Susan spoke about bargains. That was a, uh, a bargain that operated now 50 years, uh, and it may be at the verge of uh, a crisis. Now, there have been crises in the non-proliferation regime before, so I'm not anticipating necessarily, but I'm saying this, this is a, an, an especially fragile moment. Trump also retreated from the JCPOA with Iran and in the process strengthened the most inward-looking faction within Iran. He also violated another less-known nuclear-related commitment, this one vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine. At issue there is the 1994 Budapest Memorandum that provided security assurances to the Ukraine in exchange for the Ukraine renouncing what at the time was the third largest nuclear arsenal that it inherited from the Soviet Union. So the US, the UK, and Russia, the three depository states of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, signed the memorandum providing security assurances to the Ukraine, pledging to respect its territorial integrity, to abstain from economic coercion, and to refrain from the threat of uh, use of force. And we know how that went. Putin annexed Crimea and uh, invaded the Donbass. Uh, meanwhile, um, how, how long do I have? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip. I was going to get into impeachment, and, but uh, <laughs> can't resist, but okay. Uh, so I'm going to, uh, so all I want to say is that even those who believed in the existence of a nuclear taboo, and this community is very divided over whether a taboo ever existed. Maybe a taboo against use of nuclear weapons existed, maybe. Um, but not necessarily a taboo against acquisition of nuclear weapons, because acquisition of nuclear weapons obviates, the, if one believes in deterrence theory, obviates the use of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are not supposed to be used, okay? They're weapons that are supposed to deter, not to be used. But even those who believed in, 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 in the existence of a taboo are now acknowledging that if there was ever a taboo, it's unraveling. The combustible mix of inward-looking populism and a deteriorating non-proliferation regime, by the way, to some extent, this also has some corollaries in Europe in a concept that has now been, that has now re-emerged, the concept of a Euro deterrent. Uh, so this mix of inward-looking populism and a deteriorating non-proliferation regime prima facie signals some sort of perfect storm that could make those long-standing predictions of proliferation cascades more realistic than in the past. A global economic crisis that weakens economic openness even further 
and heightened strains in the non-proliferation regime could revive those inward-looking models and the pursuit of nuclear weapons with them. Severe downturns in the domestic, regional, and global political economy undermine internationalizing models and with them what I consider an important firewall against the diffusion of nuclear weapons if, uh, uh, if, if history is a guide. But it is premature to declare this outcome a certainty. The framework I discussed with you today does not assume, does not assume that political survival models follow linear or irreversible secular trajectories in either direction. Uh, this, uh, in a piece that I, um, that I did with um, a colleague of mine in the University of California system, Peter Gurevich, we surveyed the historical dynamics of these two Weberian ideal types from the repeal of the Corn Laws until today, and we look at how these models have alternated historically, uh, even if they also mutate in form. Uh, so, uh, bottom line is just as in 1989, this is not uh, the end of history, although sometimes it feels that way. So I, ran, I do write, run out of time, so I'm going to stop there and entertain uh, either I have a little prediction scenario for a research or any other questions that may be of interest. Great. Thank you very much. You can sit down. You want to stand? Right, so uh, a lecture that covered quite a lot of ground and brought in quite a bit of uh, Susan Strange uh, as well. Uh, and Neil Real went from Waltz to, to Susan Strange uh, to all sorts of um, uh, theorists. Um, and they, ended, they wrote about each other. Yeah, uh, and ended, um, ended not quite with a doomsday scenario, but <laughs> almost with a doomsday <laughs> scenario. Uh, but I'll... Um, I'll open now for, for questions uh, from the audience. Uh, I'll start can you, here. Can you state your name so I can address you? I, I think what I'll do is I'll take maybe two, three at a time. Good. So Good. right here at the front, yep. Hi, my name's Annalise. Um, what are you, Annalise. Annalise. Okay. What are your thoughts on the Middle East Marshall Plan, if, you are something, if it's something that you're aware of, and what should the West be doing to prevent Saudi Arabia from obtaining nuclear technology? And then just behind with the laptop. Yep. Hi. <clears throat> sorry. Hello. Um, my name is Bella. And I'm sorry, what word is Bella? That? Um, it's my name. Yeah. yeah. What's your name? Bella. I don't know if this is working. There we go. Um, this is just a question to do with nuclear proliferation in general. Say, had the Cold War not happened, would, do you think states would still associate nuclear proliferation as a sign of prestige on the international playing field? Can you can you spell out the question a little bit more? How how is the Cold War related to? Is just with nuclear proliferation in general, because during the Cold War it was this arms race, and it became kind of like if a state was to acquire a nuclear arm, they would be seen as more prestigious or higher up in the international playing field. And the, I personally think the Cold War heightened that idea of prestige. Had huh. the Cold War not happened, do you think this prestige of uh, do you think prestige would still be associated with nuclear proliferation? Do you want to take those two and then we'll... Oh, sure. Okay. Um, 
So, um, actually, let me start with the last one, if, uh, if I understand it correctly. So there are two different issues here. One is whether nuclear weapons are associated with prestige or not, right? And, uh, you know, it depends who you ask, right? Um, um, there is a new treaty. It's a, it's a treaty banning nuclear weapons that I just mentioned, signed in 2017, where the last thing uh, that signatories of that treaty, about 60 states or more now, uh, the last thing they would say is that there is any prestige associated with nuclear weapons, right? Now you say so. So I, I'm not saying that prestige that prestige prestige uh, is universally not not associated with nuclear weapons. As a matter of fact, those inward-looking models that I described use very much the issue of prestige. You may have seen, for instance, scenes of. Um, under Ahmadinejad, parading missiles, parading vials of enriched uranium, as if it was, you know, a, a, an incredible achievement, right? Uh, in Pakistan, you know, um, uh, and in many other countries, well, Kim Jong-un, day in and day out, you see all those sort of expressions of um, pride and, and sort of as if they really do convey prestige. So even the issue of who endows these weapons with prestige, I believe, has something to do with the model of survival, right? So the countries in East Asia that renounced nuclear weapons, their prestige was measured by how long did it take them to double their GDP? So there was the Ikeda plan in Japan that said in 10 years we're, we're going to double the GDP of Japan after the war was in ruins. Same in South Korea with Park Chung-hee, Taiwan, and so on. That was the measure, not nuclear weapons, because they didn't go for nuclear weapons. But inward-looking uh, regimes do have this tendency to, um, to endow them with prestige. Now, during the Cold War, and of course, we now see a revival of that with Putin and Trump and all that, really, really uh, peddling that, that aspect of nuclear weapons. Um, during the Cold War, um, let, let me say one other thing about prestige. I didn't talk about the first nuclear age. The first nuclear age, I said, I said that this argument fits the second nuclear age because we have sort of an international regime in place that sort of creates a world time, uh, uh, keeps a world time constant, a different world time than the first nuclear age, because the first nuclear age, think about it, begins with the United States, right? Uh, in the middle of World War II, racing against a German, a Nazi nuclear weapon, uh, potential nuclear weapon, and a Japanese potential nuclear, two programs in Japan uh, under the war. So this is, a, this is a different period, okay? Then you have the Cold War. And of course, um, there is a race with the Soviet Union uh, that um, becomes second. But then there are the cases of Britain and France, right? And I think the best work on why both Britain and France acquired nuclear weapons does jibe with the notion of prestige, especially the French case, you know, the 
uh, grandeur and actually the memoirs and so on talk very specifically about, about that dimension. So there is that dimension. But whether prestige was something that really characterized the Cold War as sort of in the scenario of the strategic balance of power between the U.S. and uh, the Soviet Union, I'm not sure, because after the Cuban Missile Crisis and the near misses, uh, the, the crisis that could have left, um, could, that could have led to a different outcome. And here, President Kennedy continues to be, um, historians are very laudatory of President Kennedy's ability to prevent that, um, that scenario. Uh, so I think there was a somewhat a, of a diminution of the prestige associated with nuclear weapons under the realization that these were very dangerous and very um, potentially, um, uh, that deterrence wasn't a, a, a guarantee, uh, that deterrence could have failed and could have wreaked uh, havoc on the world. Now to Annelise, uh, Middle East Marshall Plan, that sort of, what is Annelise here? That sort of moves us into something somewhat remote. Uh, uh, I, uh, I don't know who is going to pay for that Marshall Plan. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> I have no idea because um, the U.S. president is not into Marshall Plans of any sort. Okay, so, uh, so I'm not sure about that. Um, as to Saudi Arabia, which is a more tractable question that I think I may be able to answer. So people in the community of scholars that study nonproliferation, uh, they, they have sort of a classical slate of states that are studied. Will it go that way? Will it not? Turkey, you know, Saudi Arabia is in that category, right? Uh, it's been in that category for a long time. And there are some indications that, um, not some indications, there were statements by leaders of Saudi Arabia that if Iran went nuclear, so it would, it would go nuclear as well. There's also, for instance, some discussion of the UAE, right? The UAE um, has uh, actually a thriving nuclear energy program with, um, um, participation from South Korea. South Korea is a major exporter of civilian, civilian nuclear plants. And it's building uh, an array of capabilities, but, but uh, has signed on to best practices in terms of non-proliferation that UAE has. And of course, Saudi Arabia is also part of those treaties. Um, I, I don't venture into predictions of what Saudi Arabia will or will not do. It, it doesn't emerge out of nothing, and it doesn't really have a nuclear program right now, although there, is, there has always been this sense that the uh, tight connection between Saudi Arabia and Pakistan could yield almost overnight a capability in the hands of uh, the Saudis uh, to match uh, an Iranian uh, capability. But it, what is really interesting, if you go back to balance of power and Wotsi and balance of power and all that, is why is Iran now the source of, you know, is exacerbating this um, <coughs> vocabulary uh, when, when Israel is adjacent to this region and never provoked 
that kind of that kind of discussion. It's kind of interesting from the point of view of of Waltzian theory. All right. Do you want me to yes. say there's one here? Yeah. Thank you very much. My name is Alex. I wonder if Alex? You, you talked about Ukraine in particular. I wonder <laughs> if you can look at the other former Soviet states, yes. um, particularly maybe Belarus and the, and the Central Asian states, which are very uh, inward-looking. Uh, in the case of the Central Asian states, regional uh, conflicts abound, very strong personalities, shall we say, um, and a lot of oil and gas money looking for a home to, to, to spend on. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder, but they don't tend to fit, they don't appear to fit your model. And I know you said it wasn't perfect, but I wonder if, if there's a group there. Not only it's not, not it's, it's not a matter of perfection, it's a, it's, it's, it's a matter of inward-looking models providing sort of an enabling, an enabling dimension. It doesn't mean that every inward-looking... Of, of all the cases that will go, they would emerge out of inward looking, but that doesn't mean that all of the inward looking. So that, that, that sort of caveat. Um, uh, now on uh, the, the Ukraine, Belarus, it was Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan that basically gave up um, the inherited Soviet uh, weapons. Um, so in that part of the world, uh, there is the, um, the onset of sort of the China-led Silk Road and um, sort of the plans of really modernizing uh, Central Asia and, and, uh, and that entire kind of um, Belt and Road. Uh, and so to some extent, China, I think, talking about Marshall Plan, China is attempting this trans economic transformation, of course, in a very self-serving way, but economic transformation of those countries and integrating them into sort of some form of internationalization, right? I mean, I believe that even Iran, um, some Iranian leaders, perhaps Rouhani when he signed the JCPOA, and his foreign minister and others, and others, had in mind the integration of Iran as well in this sort of new scenarios of internationalization that China would, where China would play a central role, and uh, and Iran, uh, you know, wanted maybe to fit to fit itself into um, into that that scenario. Um, and there is, as you know, the the um, the Shanghai Treaty Organization. The, uh, and 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 that is in some ways a, um, an inst it, it, the institutionalization of that project. Um, but that's as much as I can say. I don't know how how advanced those countries are in that path. Uh, not very. Uh, reading from your your expression, uh, but yeah, I mean, look. Um, You were right when you said that those leaders may not have the right incentives to, to do away with the machinery, the inward-looking, bureaucratic, uh, and extractive machinery um, that, uh, that they would have to get rid of, just as Saudi Arabia would have to, because it, in, in some ways the profile is, is very much that one. This is not the profile 
of East Asian countries that lacked all those resources and engaged in real industrialization. Uh, so, uh, so having those, uh, as you know, the, the theory of um, um, you know, the, the oil curse explains very well why actually oil becomes a barrier to, to internationalization in many ways. <clears throat> okay, there's two at the front, and the, the, I'm going to tell, okay, great, quite a few hands going up now. Um, uh, well, I'm just going to start at the back, and then I'll come forward. Yes, right there, yeah. Thank you. We're going to, we'll take, um, maybe, we'll take four at the, no, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry for the name, Elise. <laughs> Elise? Elise, yeah. Elise, okay. And um, you talked about the importance of like globalized market and economy and how it deterred, like turned some state away from proliferation. And uh, I was wondering, like applied to the case of North Korea, I guess my question has two parts. My first one is, do you think it was a bad strategic calculus for then US to impose economic sanctions on North Korea? And my second part would be today, if we lifted sanctions gradually, do you think it would also lead to gradual denuclearization and possibly one day total? North Korea? Yes. Like, is it, um, like, go, going back to the talks that are actually happening right now, not right now, but they used to happen last year, um, did it have, like, could it one day lead to denuclearization if we lift the sanctions gradually? Thank you. Right there. Right in front of her. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Hello, my name is Rachel, and I have a very similar question, actually, but in more broad terms, the countries you mentioned that were inwards looking, is there a way to either start denuclearization talks by integrating them into the outward looking model, or what are the prospects for denuclearization um, in the inward looking country model? Which, which one? Which, which one are you talking about? What are the prospects today? Yeah, today. For, yeah. Which, for which ones? Um, so, well, that's part of the question. If it's just a case-by-case -case basis, like for each country, um, or if there's kind of a model that can be used to bring inward-looking countries um, more integrated into the international community. In general. You're talking not in about general. those pursuing nuclear weapons. You're yes. talking in general. Okay, yes. okay, okay. And your name was? Rachel. Rachel. All right, two at the front here then. Hi, I'm uh, Susan. I was wondering if I could get you to expand on the connection between... Sorry, oh, hi, Susan. Hi. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't no, see okay. you. I'm so sorry. Um, yes, go ahead. Between the inward or outward-looking state and nuclear weapons. So in other words, is there some sort of inherent incompatibility between nuclear weapons and um, outward-looking states, or is it simply a result of the fact that the U.S. has hegemon established the international economy, the open international economy, and at the same time had an interest in preserving its strategic advantage in nuclear weapons. All right, next. Very good question that I've thought a lot about. <laughs> okay. Um, yes. Hi, Leslie. Um, I just want you to talk about Iran, uh, and, I, and I don't mean that, you know, obviously we're all talking about Iran right now, but I'm, I've been trying to, to get my head around how it is that you think about Iran theoretically. How do you explain the fact that there was, you know, one direction of travel and now there's another direction of travel? How do you explain that in the, in the <coughs> confines of, of your theory? Um, 
And I guess just a sort of tag on comment, you know, there are different ways of being inward looking and outward looking. Yes. And, and, and um, you know, in many ways, Iran is outward looking, um, but probably not in the ways that you're thinking. So right. maybe you could say so a little my, bit more about that. I was that. very specific. That my, my, my outward looking, or inter- I call internationalizing, internationalizing because there's no country that is internationalized. Not even, as you know, even the U.S. is protects in, in certain se- sectors and so on. So it's kind of a, um, a direction, right? And there are cases that are very clear at one end of the spectrum or the other, and others that are more of a hybrid. And that's, um, so I'll explain Iran in that, in, in that fashion. But my concept, I know I defined it very clearly. It's not outward oriented in the sense of you're, you're, you're talking about Iran wreaking havoc in the region. That's not what I mean by, it's an IPE concept of you know, internationalizing versus inward looking in IPE terms. That's, that's very specific. Um, but yeah, there are other ways of, you know, the North Koreans are very, very out, outward oriented, diffusing nuclear technology all over the map, right? That's, that's not the term that, I, that, I, that I'd like to use. I, you want to go one more? No, no, no. That's okay. That's, okay. <laughs> I think I think that we gave you quite a quite okay, a Let me see where we start with Elise uh, on North Korea and economic sanctions. So I have a book that actually I did collaborative collaborative with um, yeah uh, with some colleagues in, uh, in the United States on the effectiveness of sanctions and positive inducements in the issue area of nuclear proliferation. Because there's a vast literature on sanctions that says, oh, sanctions don't work. If I were to poll all of you, just for the heck of it, how many of you think sanctions don't work? Raise your hands if you think sanctions don't work. Huh, okay. No, because First of all, there is the issue area, right? Do they it's, a, it's a question that is really um, a very complex question to answer. But there is a certain orientation, I believe, among academics to believe that sanctions don't work. Uh, well, sometimes they do. Okay. And, and we did that book only in the, in the context of nuclear weapons, and we explored all cases um, of uh, positive inducements and negative inducements and whether or not they worked. The distillation of all that for North Korea, in addition to the empirical events that have happened since the ascent of Trump uh, uh, with respect to North Korea, lead me to believe that no, um, North Korea is not about to denuclearize, no matter what, positive inducements or negative inducements. It's all a charade. Uh, now, of course, Trump has created an environment, has exacerbated the tension unnecessarily with all those, uh, you know, that episode of uh, vulgar competition with Kim Jong-un. Uh, and then going to the other extreme of, um, of doing what, uh, frankly, President Obama and other predecessors would never do, which is um, uh, basically compensate Kim Jong-un, I mean, not compensate, uh, uh, surrender, you know, uh, positive inducements that could have been given to Kim Jong-un in exchange for something, 
but they were given to Kim Jong-un in the form of the meeting in Singapore, the meeting in Vietnam, and crossing the border to North Korea, the first time an American president entered the territory of North Korea, right? All these things that Trump gave away for nothing. So this is, this is, this is not a very uh, effective policy uh, going on with respect to North Korea, in my view. And I think South Korea is playing a very dangerous game as, a game as well. Uh, but that's, that's a different topic. Um, uh, so lifting sanctions is not, is not, it depends on exchange for what, but I mean, uh, Kim Jong-un is playing um, the White House like uh, never before. Um, Rachel? So I actually <laughs> wrote another book that has nothing to do with nuclear weapons on, on this dynamic of inward looking and, um, and, and, and there I have sort of a two by two matrix about the evolution of what used to be an overwhelming majority of inward looking regimes in the industrializing world in the 1970s and 80s and so on, until, until economic reform took hold in most of those countries. And you know, many countries basically um, shifted gears, not just the East Asians, but, but others. And as a matter of fact, that's happening in, in several countries in Africa, Ethiopia, for instance, and so on. So that's a topic uh, in IPE about who, you know, who engages in economic reforms of joining the global economy and so on. That <clears throat> process that uh, yielded many more countries engaging the global economy, including in Southeast Asia, most of Southeast Asia, most recently Burma, that process worldwide is receding, as we know, right? This is sort of the rise of um, populism and so on. But I think it's receding the least in East Asia, for now. China may be the exception because there is sort of an element of populism in Xi Jinping's strategy, not before him, but as of the last four or five years, and I've written on China myself, um, there seems to be, so China may be, may be the, the exception in that domain, although, although Xi Jinping has been very vocal in sort of claiming that China is all underpinning an open global economy. So even there, you know, he's not, he's not worth, it's not the vocabulary that Trump, that Trump um, um, brings up. Susan, you're right that, that that would have been sort of the intuition, right? That, well, the U.S., uh, underpinned um, an open, a liberal open economy, and, and that's why, you know, Japan. But the truth is that for many years, since Bretton Woods and, and, and all of that, the U.S. wanted countries to, um, to basically transform into uh, outward looking, and they didn't. They had to have some receptivity internally to do it. That's how Taiwan and sort of the East Asian, uh, the East Asian tigers and cubs and all of those, right, folded. There was some domestic receptivity, perhaps because of what we discussed before, the exhaustion of the import substitution and so on and so forth. 
But the rest of the world, even Latin America, to this day, is defying that process of internationalization. So to trace the internationalization of the economy to the U.S. is already, already tricky. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, and the, the U.S. didn't make it contingent, right? Uh, you internationalize your economy and I will extend my nuclear umbrella over you. Well, it didn't work that way. But um, what, I, what I do contend is that the internationalizing models of the East Asian, the East Asian countries that did not opt for nuclear weapons, okay, by definition, had the alliance, the, the basically, the, the alliance was endogenous to the model, if you will, okay? Uh, and so, uh, look, look at it today, right? Today, who is, who, is, <laughs> who is pushing them to international trial? Not so, right? It's very, it's very domestically driven now to stay with, look, look at what other machines is doing. It's incredible. You know, Japan leading you know, the reconstitution of TPP and all that, it's not the U.S., uh, the White House agenda. I, I actually have a lot more on that, but, uh, but I'm gonna, but we can, we can chat a little bit more later. Leslie, Iran. So, actually, on, I've done a lot of work on Iran in light of these models, including in that book, there's a whole chapter on Iran tracing the dynamic between sort of inward looking. And, and the characters remain the same to this day. So in, in Iran you have, so who are, who are the components of the inward looking? The inward looking in my sense, right? Inward looking. Um, the judiciary is part of it very much. Actually I just read recently um, that one of the heads of the inward looking camp in the Iranian Judiciary, Ali Larijani is 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 um, uh, retiring finally. So the so the Jewish, but at the heart of the inward-looking camp in Iran is the IRGC. The IRGC dominates the economy of Iran. Does not want to compete in the global economy. Why would it? It's extracting all the goodies under protectionist and sanctions. They love it. Okay, so they have no incentive in allowing the Rohanis of the world uh, and sort of the, 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 the would-be internationalizers to engage in this sort of new agenda, right? But this is sort of a constant. I have, all, I have very detailed analysis of who was in, uh, in, in the respective camps and how, for instance, under Katami, that would have preferred a different outcome for Iran nuclear weapons. For, for Iran's nuclear program, um, how, uh, how he was prevented from doing that. And when we're talking about competition, especially in the case of Iran, you know what kind of competition we're talking about? I'm sure you know. Competition where Katami's associates were being assassinated. This is, this is some competition. Right? So that competition is, of course, multifaceted, but it has corollaries for the nuclear program. Whereas Rouhani, I'm sure, would have wanted perhaps both modernization and, and uh, perhaps that it's, it's basically Susan's bargains, right? 
I would, it's a hierarchy of preferences. I would rather modernize, internationalize the economy than nuclearize. It depends on, again, uh, who is setting the tone. Now, what happens right now is that the events under Trump specifically have strengthened the inward-looking camp uh, to the extent that some of Rouhani's statement, statements are unrecognizable, frankly, because it's very clear that he's under pressure by, um, by under pressure from the much stronger inward-looking camp today than it was five years ago when they actually signed the JCPOA. The, the fiercest opponents of the JCPOA were in the inward-looking camp, including, as you know, Soleimani, who was killed recently. All right, great. Thank you very much. We have come to uh, the end uh, of, of the evening's lecture. We're, we're out of time, unfortunately. Um, but I'd like to thank Etel very much for a wide-ranging uh, conversation, not entirely without hope, but boy, do I feel a little <laughs> less likely. I sort of feel nightmares coming on in the middle of the night, I think, um, about nukes now. But, uh, but not entirely. Uh, but anyway, thank you very I, I much. <laughs>